You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, November 6th, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hello, my friends. How are you? Hello, governor. Super. It's a really good day for birthdays. Yeah. Did you know that? November 9th, big science birthday day. Cool. Let me me tell you about a couple, Uh, starting with the ones you've never heard of. <laughs> uh, number one, Florence Reina Sabine was born November 9th, 1871, and she was the first woman to hold a full professorship at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Thank you for pronouncing the name correctly. <laughs> what, the woman's name or the university? Yeah. yeah. Nine School. out of ten people say John Hopkins. No, oh, God, no. So there are at Hopkins. least three oh, Johns at please. Johns Hopkins, so you do have to pronounce Johns yes. Hopkins, thank you. Johns uh, Hopkins. <laughs> she was the first woman elected to the National Academy of Sciences and the first woman to head a department at the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research. She investigated the lymphatic system and was one of the people who proved that it developed from the veins in the embryo and grew out into tissues which was apparently the opposite of what was thought at the time. So she was an awesome pioneer for women in medicine. Florence Rena Sabine. Yeah, she was pretty badass. Happy birthday, Florence. Number two, Benjamin Banneker. Born November 9th, 1731, he was a self-taught astronomer and mathematician and the son of a freed slave. He authored a series of successful almanacs, and he regularly corresponded with Thomas Jefferson about many topics, both scientific and political. Benjamin Banneker, happy birthday. And last but not least, some guy named Carl Sagan. Next. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Carl Sagan was born November 9th, 1934. This is, I guess, does that make today Carl Sagan Day? I think it does. Yes, it does. Uh, Sure. Happy Sagan Day. He'd be 80. Holy crap. Mm, only 80? He should still Gosh. be alive. Oh, definitely no. should still be alive. Freaking cancer. When are that we going to solve jerk. that one? <laughs> you know, dinosaurs got cancer. Is that right? Yeah. I never heard that. Sharks too. I know. How could they have had cancer if there was no in- pollutants and in industri- industry to cause it? Ah, you'll learn about it later. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about that later when we have Chris Mooney and Injury ah. Viscontis on the show to talk about their new podcast. But first, let's go on to some news items. Bob, you're going to start off by telling us why everything in Doctor Who is real. <laughs> um, I'm listening. Yes. Well, I'm going to start, guys. I think you will all agree that sometimes I think it's ch- it's cheap to throw a popular, you know, culture sci-fi reference into a science news item. We see it all the time. And it's, oh, clear- yeah. it's clearly done <laughs> just to get clicks. It's like, oh, yeah, I got to read this. And, and I fall prey to that as well. But sometimes, though, the scientists themselves make the reference. And I just love when that happens. In this case, two scientists, Dr. Ben Tippett and Dr. Dave Sang, wrote a paper discussing the feasibility of creating a TARDIS to go forward and backward in time. Bob, do you know what TARDIS stands for? It stands for Traversable Acronal Retrograde Domains in Space Time. Do you know what it stands for in the Doctor Who universe? No, I don't. Oh, that's pathetic. Really? Pathetic. <laughs> oh, oh, Bob. Time and relative oh. dimension in space. Oh, oh boy. My goodness. Okay, I like oh, mine a lot Bob, better. Bob. But uh <laughs> yours is better though, I have to say. So uh, a TARDIS of course needs no introduction and I will ignore that statement and say that it, it's perhaps the most iconic image of that phenomenon 
known as Doctor Who. Um, I have to say that uh, at my most recent Halloween party, a TARDIS actually made an appearance last week. We'll see. Very Steve, cute one. Uh, yeah. Yes, Stephen. materialized. Steve and his wife, Jocelyn, uh, came as two different doctors, and they look smashing. Uh, their daughter, Julia, was Clara, and little Autumn came as a TARDIS, and she was adorable. Aww. So I just want to throw Aww. that out there. The real TARDIS from the show, of course, isn't a cute little girl. Uh, due, due to a faulty chameleon circuit, it always manifests itself as a 1960s era London police box. Do you know what that is? That's like a mini police police? station. It's a mini police station. It's where you throw criminals to. That's very mini. No, you don't know. No, it's it's really just a a mini police, uh, office, police station where there's things in there that a police officer would find useful and you could actually make phone calls from the outside. Of the box. Well, whatever. I thought, I really thought it was a place, like a box where they threw criminals, like to, to hold them. In the hot pen. Yeah, private citizens could use it that way. And there was a phone that you could get access to on the outside. But it was essentially for anyone, police or the public, to call into the police station. And there were some resources there also for police, like a first aid kit, etc. So it did have multiple uses. It was basically, I think as Bob says, a mobile way to contact the police. And the light on top, which is also, you know, iconic, that was to alert police officers that they needed to call into the station. But the TARDIS that I'm talking about, that these scientists say they uh, theoretically uh, can create, there oh, is yeah. some, it does have some interesting deviations from a real police box. I mean, the TARDIS in the show, it can go, it can go anywhere in space and time, far future, cool. deep, deep past, mm-hmm. anywhere, anywhere, which is very nice. It's bigger on the inside than the outside. It's bigger um, on the inside. Yes. That's a running it, joke on the show. It, ah, uh, it's got the you. chameleon circuit, which we which we talked about, um, and it even has a degree of sentience, like the Knight Rider car, kind of like that. Well, it doesn't talk, but oh, so the, the this theoretical TARDIS <laughs> uh, that's recently uh, been written about, though, is a bit different. Uh, it, it has just one of those attributes that I just mentioned. Actually, making it bigger on the inside was considered uh, trivial, uh, considering that it could theoretically, anyway, mo- move back and forth in time. You know, being bigger on the inside was like, ah, oh, that's small potatoes. And uh, actually, they commented on the ability, uh, you know, being able to dematerialize and rematerialize at its, at its destination. And, and Tippett said that that's bananas. He's like, I have no idea how to justify something materializing. So it's funny that he actually addressed that. But still, time travel is nice, I suppose. Uh, their paper is called, like I said before, Traversable Achronal Retrograde Domains in Spacetime. So what, so what does it mean? Traversable means that it can transport massive objects. Achronal means that the TARDIS moves faster than light. Um, retrograde refers to the arrow of time outside the bubble. And finally, domain is just a bubble. Uh, so what? It, so what is this bubble if it's not a police box? It, it's actually a bubble of curved space-time that travels on a closed loop. Now, if you were in the bubble, you'd they claim that you would feel a constant acceleration. But if you were able to observe the bubble from the outside, you'd actually see two bubbles. One would move forward in time and the other would be going back in time. Now, according to the theory, it can only go in circles, but however, they can, they can adapt. They can actually change that. The authors speculate that the space-time geometries can potentially, at least mathematically anyway, be sliced apart into a sort of, the, you know, an open-ended U-shape. And uh, they say that if you enter the shape on one side, you perhaps would exit the other side, moving backward in time with your parts reversed. Now, this could mean, um, that you were then, that you would then be made of antimatter. 
or from your point of view, the entire universe would be made of antimatter, which is not a good thing. So, and this is, you know, this is kind of silly. It's related to the fringe idea that all antiparticles are in reality regular particles moving back in time. But uh, that's, that is a, a fringe belief or theory. And there is no consensus on that, though. But that's why they brought that up. So is this possible? Uh, in my opinion, it's not likely at all. Sorry, doctor. Uh, creating this kind of space-time curvature, it's, it's not really possible using normal matter. If it were, at the very least, you, you know, you would need something, you would need to manipulate black holes worth of, of mass. Uh, if even that would do it. Uh, to really pull it off, though, you would need an exotic type of matter. Uh, that most likely doesn't exist, uh, and it gets even worse. This type of exotic matter would have to be gravitationally repulsive and also move faster than the speed of light. So uh, that should be easy to pull off. So the, the bottom line with this, though, is that the paper has not been reviewed yet by other physicists, so it hasn't been officially published. Uh, so let's see what they have to say. Uh, I suspect they may say some of the similar things that I've said. A couple of things, though, that I really liked, the authors released a technical version of their paper, and also, concurrently, a layman's version, which is a really nice touch, I thought, for physics enthusiasts, you know, to get a handle on on, the, on their theory and also the supporting uncontroversial theories uh, that play into this theory. So it's great just as a primer for these types of sciences, you know, quite apart from this, you know, this really extreme stuff that, that, that they're talking about and, of course, unverified. Um, so using popular culture to help teach people science and make it entertaining at the same time is, of course, a great idea that we, we of course, would all, you know, be behind. And uh, so even if a real TARDIS forever remains in the, in the realm of science fiction, uh, I think it was still, uh, it was still very interesting and entertaining. Bob, did you read about the Tipler cylinder in the lay version of the paper? I didn't read the, I didn't read the section on Tipler. I just, I just mainly so read if what it, they Essentially, if you had a cylinder of some mass that was infinitely long, and you spun it, you rotated it very fast, the frame dragging that results could uh, bend the light cones so that you would go back in time. I haven't read too much about that that approach to going back in time. That's interesting. So all uh, you need is a, a cylinder of infinite length? No problem. I have two questions, okay. which I will ask in descending order of importance. <laughs> in regards to the TARDIS being able to materialize out of thin air, did the author actually write in the paper, quote, that's bananas? No, this is just an interview that he did outside oh, okay. of the paper. My second question is also related to this point. If you have an object moving backwards in time, then from the standpoint of a person moving forward through time, wouldn't the object materialize out of thin air? Uh, I suppose so. So why is that bananas? <laughs> Yeah, I guess like if something is traveling through the fourth physical dimension and intersects your three-dimensional universe, it would appear out of nowhere. Yeah. So the same so thing. So I, true I with submit time, right? that I submit that that is not bananas. Well, I'll call Tippett mm -hmm. and have have stern words with him. Thank you. So we're gonna we're going to change gears a little bit and go from uh, super advanced alien technology to very primitive ancient human technology, although not that primitive, Evan. This uh, particular news item. Well, focuses around a place called the Forbidden City, which is on the outskirts of Mordor, where the orcs and elves fought a famous battle for control over Middle-earth and the one true ring. Yes. Yes. No. Actually, the Forbidden City is in Beijing, China. It was the Chinese imperial palace, palace from the Ming Dynasty to the end of the Qing Dynasty. For almost 500 years, it served as the home of emperors and their households, as well as the ser 
ceremonial and political center of the Chinese government. Uh, nowadays, it's an enormous tourist attraction, uh, bringing in lots and lots of people every year, millions. Um, the reason it was called the Forbidden City is because no one could enter or leave the palace without the emperor's permission. The city's construction began in the year 1406. During its construction uh, and subsequent expansion over the course of two centuries, uh, these enormous stones were hauled from distant quarries, some of them as far as way as 70 kilometers. And we're talking some really big and heavy stones. Uh, in the one example they give in this particular story, uh, there is this monolith, which measures 49 cubic meters in volume and weighs about 112 tons. And that's almost a quarter million pounds. So how were they able in the 15th century to move such enormous slabs? Aliens. Well, Aliens. Uh, yes. <laughs> of course. Helicopters. Yes. Anti-gravity gods. No, no, don't be uh, ridiculous. They had an army of we, big feet do it for you. They shoved it into a TARDIS and brought it forward in time. The Chinese, well, the Chinese had long since made excellent utility out of wheeled vehicles. And for some time, it was assumed that some grand wheeled vehicle were among the tools used for such heavy loads. However, for rocks this size, the math just doesn't add up. You can't, uh, you can't move something this big, even on the most uh, sophisticated wheels and carts that they had at the time. Well, historians had believed that some of these enormous stones uh, in the Forbidden City had been transported by sledges pulled by teams of men during the winter seasons. And while there are no images known from the time depicting this method, it seems a very reasonable hypothesis. And why the winter? Well, uh, because it was possible for the workers and engineers at the time to maneuver these slabs on the sledges, which being pulled on the icy roads of winter would prove to be much easier than trying to drag these stones by themselves uh, along the frozen winter roads, or for that matter, in the other seasons when there was no freezing of the roads to, uh, to help them. It would be quite a slog. But just recently, uh, a mechanical engineer at the University of Science and Technology of Beijing, along with uh, a few other folks as part of this team, they stumbled across an ancient document with a more detailed description on how the monolith made its journey to the Forbidden City. So this quarter-million-pound monolith, 70-kilometer journey, took four weeks to move, averaging out to about 8 centimeters per second, um, which, given the windy roads that the monolith had to be pulled along, seemed to be an impossible feat to have been accomplished in such a relatively short period of time. But the trick appears to have lied in the fact that they added... Uh, a little bit of water to the ice roads and sort of made this, you know, slick, extra slick surface. It, so it turns out if that you lay down the water as your team of men pull the sledge with the stone on board, it would have been possible for a mere 50 men to have pulled the monolith along this windy, icy road and cover four kilometers uh, and cover 70 kilometers in four weeks. Now you need to compare that to the estimated 1,500 men it would have likely taken to drag the same stone along the dry land, or the estimated 330 or so men it would have taken to pull it along just the icy roads by themselves in the winter without the coating of water. And these are the results presented by a team of scientists and engineers as being reported in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And uh, it's not without controversy in the sense that there are others who are not sure, so sure that these numbers really do add up. They cite the fact that it takes more energy to get the sledge moving from a standstill position, which would be more than, say, 50 men would be able to accomplish. 
and if the roads along which the monolith was being pulled experienced any significant slopes, roughly 10 degrees or so, it's uh, very unlikely that a mere 50 men could have pulled it up or, or control it down given such gradients. So they had 100 so, men, so what? Yeah, well, that's what I was thinking too. And who's to say that they didn't use beasts of burden, you know, yeah. to help to help them as well? Um, like know, they did said, they, they have them? I mean, I imagine pandas they did. mostly. Pandas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many pandas would have taken them just to pull that monolith? Three million. The thing that makes these kinds of stories interesting is that we tend to think of people in the past as being, you know, quote unquote primitive, but in fact they were you know, fully modern humans. No reason to think they weren't as intelligent as we are today, and. They can figure this stuff out. But, Rebecca, what I want to know is, do people blush in the dark? How could we ever possibly know the answer to that question? Well, you can't. You can't because uh, when you turn on the light to see, you know, now they're <laughs> now they're in the light. It's like, does the light go off when you close the refrigerator? When you close the fridge. Yeah. yeah it is exactly <laughs> like that. This is a very important study that was published in... The Annals of Improbable Research, uh, back in March, actually, but it's only just been published online for the first time. Annals of Improbable Research, of course, is the uh, journal that is attached to the uh, Ig Nobel Awards that we talk about every year, um, and that we just talked about like a month ago. So you have an idea of the sorts of things that are published there. But I did find it interesting for a number of reasons. Um, the authors, uh, scientists from Germany and the Netherlands teamed up to determine whether or not a person blushes in the dark. And in the paper, they describe how in the past, this has been used as an example to talk about how science can't know everything. They mentioned that, for instance, uh, physicist Max Born once said, uh, the quest for the absolute truth of things in themselves is similar to the attempt to find out whether young girls or middle-aged physicists blush in the dark. The necessary procedure, turning on the light, is not compatible with the situation to be studied. He's not the only one. This has apparently come up again and again and again over the centuries. And yet, these researchers have found that no one has actually scientifically studied this. And, uh, or if they have, they haven't been published in any reputable journals like the Annals of Improbable Research. So they, yeah, they decided to try it by uh, taking a person who was known to blush very easily putting her in a pitch black room with a thermographic camera and had her tell a very embarrassing story about herself. <laughs> and sure enough, they found right. that she blushed in the dark, even though no one could see. So uh, it's interesting to me because number one of the, the fact that this has been used in the past as an example of something that you cannot scientifically prove which is funny. And also because this actually does relate to uh, several conditions that we always wonder, you know, are they contagious? Is there a social aspect to them? Uh, blushing is one. Yawning is another. Laughing is one. Sneezing. And so this is actually one fun little study to add to the pile of research that does go on about how, you know, what, what is the purpose of these sort of things? Why do we blush? Well, it might not be 
purely social because apparently we do it even when no one's looking. Fun little study. Yes, we blush in the dark, or at least one person blushes in the dark. Yeah. Uh, more more studies needed. Yeah. This person was chosen because she was a notorious blusher. Yes. Huh. The authors suggest perhaps the individual's propensity to blush when alone may prove to be a diagnostic and prognostic personality trait. In the case of blushing, this trait might indeed be a measure for, quote, modesty. Can you guys feel it when you blush? Because I can. I, yeah. I, I feel a warmness come over my face. Yes. I can't And it's it. usually something you don't want other people to see, I feel. But, you know, it, it is funny. The, the author's discussion of the implications of the research were... I thought a little hyper adaptationalist, meaning that, you know, there doesn't necessarily need to be a specific adaptive reason why people blush or, and this study does not necessarily imply that it's not social because it would happen in the dark. Even if blushing evolved 100% as a social signal, that doesn't mean that it would be so finely tuned that it would, that the reflex would turn off when somehow you knew that other people couldn't see you. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, it wasn't as mysterious because they were making out. But it's funny mostly because it's like the a, a cliched thing that could never be studied, and they studied it. Yeah, which is cool. But you know what's even more interesting than that? Nothing. Rebecca, yeah. Nothing is at all. That is more a, tard- than that. a Tardis. I want a quickie with Bob. <gasps> oh, that boy. is interesting, but unsettling. Thank you, Steve. This is your quickie with Bob. Uh, this one was. This one is pretty good. Uh, Japanese scientists at Ishikawa Oku Laboratory have created a robotic hand that can win rock, paper, scissors every time. At last. At every Finally. time. Last. <laughs> Finally. All when of I, our problems are solved. Well, you know, when I, when I read that, I thought, how is that possible? You know, 100%, 80%, 90%, sure, I could see that, but 100 And there's, there is a trick, of course, and it's slick, and it's essentially imperceptible. The key, though, is that it's not prediction that allows this robot, robotic hand to pull this off, but high-speed recognition and reaction. And yes, it's cheating, but it's still kind of cool. Um, what it does is it essentially recognizes what shape your hand is in or what it's going to eventually be in and very, very quickly creates the hand shape that it needs to win. Bam, there you go. So think about that. Cheater done, robot. If it's done fast enough, you would never even know you would never even know it, even if you used a yeah. high-speed camera. It would be, you know, that's, that's a very interesting aspect to it. Even if you know it's cheating, you really you really can't tell. So it only takes a thousandth of a second to know what you've played. So so very quickly, it knows exactly what you did. And then blazingly fast, it just configures its hand to do what it needs to do to win. So um, it, And it happens so fast that it's essentially uh, simultaneous is what the scientists are saying. And, of course, completely unnoticeable. So check out the uh, the link. Um, huh. I think it'll be in the show notes, or you just Google it. It's, it's a real fun video, and this the hand is incredibly fast. And uh, and that's all I got about that. This has been your quickie with Bob. I hope it was good for you too. And, wow, oh yeah, Bob, I, wanted to say, was, oh, I wanted to say that actually oh, was quick. Like, no, you can't. Do, no, no, don't ask me. No, no it, this Bob, is good. I was just about to commend you. This is good. Yeah, it's good. If you if you must play this game against a robot, <laughs> I have a suggestion: play rock paper scissors lizard Spock. That's it. <laughs> nope, you ruined it. You ruined it. No. Oh, wow. It Rebecca, was like a you and I were both quickie. like proud uh, of him. And the look big, what happened. Yeah. Big, just... the, a big bang theory reference. <laughs> Come on. Sheldon. Big, nope. Rock, paper, scissors, lizard nope. talk. Not worth it. Whatever. Whatever. You, you blew it. By the way, so, Bob, since you bring it up, we, we occasionally get questions about 
where can I find the link to that article or that reference or whatever? It's almost as if some of our listeners aren't aware of the fact that all of the links are provided in the show notes on our website. So go to theskepticsguide.org, click on the episode, and you will see a link that called, that's called show notes. If you click on that, it gives a listing of everything we talk about in the show and all of the relevant links. They're all right there. And while you're there, maybe you'll check out our membership section. Just saying. <laughs> Just saying. All right, Evan. All right, Evan. It's time for Who's That Noisy? I'm going to play for you right now last week's Who's That Noisy? So you will all have it fresh in your mind. Here we go. Ba, 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 ba. Okay, does that ring any bells? McGurk. Yeah. McGurk. Okay. Take an extra second or two before you jump all over it, as if you've known that. Since, That's uh, I've known that for quite some time. So I mean, I've incorporated that very thing into my into my lectures. The thing is, that's a very visual noisy, actually. It is a visual noisy, but you'd be surprised at how many people actually got it just from the audio component of it. Apparently, uh, no, a lot I wouldn't of people be surprised. Have seen, have seen this or seen a version of it. And the McGurk effect is a perceptual phenomenon that demonstrates an interaction between hearing and vision in speech perception. And it's an illusion. It occurs when the auditory component of one sound is paired with the visual component of another sound, leading to the perception of a third sound. Or in this case, you know, so the, the, the speaker is saying, you know, either ba-ba or fa-fa, but it's kind of what what's the sound is ambiguous, sort of somewhere between that. And then if you see him mouthing, F, fa, then your mm. brain hears fa. You hear the exact same sound with video where it looks like he's saying ba and you hear ba. Now, the first time you guys experienced this, did, did, were you able to figure out kind of what was going on initially or did it take the second time for you to like look away and, and hear it before you realized what was going on? Yeah, I was confused. It's really freaky. And it's it was a, a turning point in a way for me to realize just how profound our perception dictates. You know, in other words, what you see profoundly affects what you uh, hear and what you think. It's it's so tied. Like you're not experiencing reality like you're watching a movie. Your brain is just truly constructing this thing, and it could be significantly changed by mm -hmm. what by what you're seeing. And it's just so weird, and it's humbling. Should be. Uh, Aubrey Moat is this week's winner of the contest. He guessed correctly. Congratulations, Aubrey. Well done. Your name goes into the drawing at the uh, end of the year or early part of next year, in which we're going to select a grand prize winner to join us for a round of science or fiction on an upcoming episode. So well done. Now, moving along. This week's Noisy is something that, uh, well, is uh, adorable, if you ask me. Here we go. <laughs> That's Jabba the Hutt's mother. So, folks, give it your best guess. WTN at theskepticsguide.org is the email address to submit your Who's That Noisy answers or join our forums or post on our forums, sguforums.com. Under the Who's That Noisy thread. Good luck, everyone. Thank you, Evan. Thank you. Uh, Jay, you're going to give us a quick update on a fraudster for this week's edition of Swindler's List. That's right. I haven't done a Swindler's List in a long time, and I'm very excited to bring it back with the news about 
to uh, share with you guys. So, of course, you guys remember Kevin Trudeau. And How could the, we forget? Uh, for those of you who don't know Kevin Trudeau, he um, is a scam artist. That's it. That's the best description. He, I'd say most famous for a book he wrote called The Weight Loss Cure They Don't Want You to Know About. In 2006 and 2007, he aired a infomercial that sold this book or helped the sale of this book. And guys, guess how many times that infomercial had aired? A thousand. Seven? 32,000 times. What? Yep, 87. The commercial ran 87 times a day or, you know, on average 87 times a day in order to get get to that mark. So unbelievably sure, he runs the commercial. Tons of people see it. Tons of people buy it. And during the commercials, he claimed the cure for obesity was to walk an hour each day and to limit caloric intake to 500 calories. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. 500. Trudeau, who's now 50 years old, was charged with violating an agreement he had with the FTC as to how he can market his book. So the way that he was marketing his the weight loss cure they don't want you to know about was breaking an agreement that he made with the FTC. So in 2004, federal court settlement with the FTC, Trudeau was banned from marketing his products on infomercials and agreed to pay a $2 million fine. This agreement was constructed because of the way he marketed his past products. And, and, you know, these products were things that discussed how to combat AIDS, hair loss, memory loss. Um, they all had the same kind of flavor. And of course, the guy's very, very good salesman. He's very slippery. Uh, he's good at convincing people of things. So the FTC claimed that his weight loss book had an inaccurate pieces or had several inaccurate pieces of information and was in violation of this agreement that they, that they had come to. So now Judge Robert Gettleman ordered Trudeau to pay back consumers almost $38 million in 2010 because of this break, break in the agreement. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Trudeau claims that he's flat broke and can't pay his fines. Gettleman, the Judge Gettleman is getting angry. And in uh, October 22nd of 2013 of this year, um, he was charged with civil contempt for hiding assets. And then on October 24th, he tried again to convince the judge he was broke and he was sent, to, you know, sent back into jail. And the real problem here is that Trudeau owns several international businesses and assets. And the judge is aware of these, but, you know, they can't really prove that the, those companies and assets, you know, either have money or what their value is. So when he told the judge that he was simply broke and that he had revealed all his financials, the judge said, the truth is that I just don't believe that. And the judge, you know, apparently was right. So now Trudeau has not paid any money, not a dime of the original fine that came up five years ago. And what's worse is that he has indeed been living a lifestyle of the rich and famous. He owns a Bentley. He has personal chefs, plural, and spent expensive clothes and bling. And the judge knows he's full of it. And I'll tell you why. Now, check this out. The, the, the judge, uh, I guess during their investigation, they found out that soon after the original the agreement had been made and or the first sentencing came up where they were calling him into jail and they were not sentencing, but they were basically trying to get to the bottom of things. Trudeau sent a ton of emails during that time that they saw where he was feverishly trying to hide his money overseas, exactly where he knew the judge couldn't get it. He's a scumbag. They totally busted him. So now it seems that the judge, that Judge Gettleman's strategy is working and it's heavily suspected that Trudeau might cave soon. His trial started last Tuesday on the 5th of November, 2013. And check this out, guys. If he fails to convince the jury he's telling the truth, he could go to jail for life. Whoa, for life. Let's hope. Life. Yep. 
So, you know, Trudeau claimed in his infomercials that the cure for obesity was in fact not the di- not a diet and that it also required no supplementation or exercise, right? But then when you read the book, the book stated that you have to restrict yourself to a 500-calorie-a-day diet, you need daily injections of prescription hormones, and long daily walks. So, of course, there's a clear discrepancy between what he's saying on his infomercial and what the actual book says. And, and you know, the part of the book that it would work, not that it's healthy, and please do not restrict yourself to a 500-calorie-a-day diet. But absolutely, if you're going to be exercising, even moderate exercise and restricting yourself to 500 calories, you're going to lose weight. That That's, you know, definitely going to work. My favorite part of the charges against him concerning that book was that, and we talked about this before, but I want to bring it up again because it's hilarious, um, is that one of his promises was that it's like 10 easy steps uh, that you can do in like 30 days. But step 10 was do it for the rest of your life. (laughs) (laughs) He's such a jerk. I have just one question in 64 parts. Um, I think one one good piece of news is that the jury is going to watch his infomercial or, you know, probably several of them. And then, That's not good news. They're probably going to come away and buy stuff. <laughs> no, and then they're going to be read excerpts from the book. And if there's a discrepancy between what's in the book, which we already know there is, and what he said in the infomercials, it, the chances of him getting off are almost zero. You never know, though. These guys have a way of sl- slipping away. But it sounds like right now he's out of jail again. He was in jail for a while, but now he's out of jail, while, I guess, while the, these proceedings are happening. Yeah, I'm not crystal clear whether or not he's in or Well, there's an October 28th news report reading saying that, that Judge Gettleman let him out of prison because he thinks that that way he'll be able to answer the questions about where his money is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, I did read that, Steve, that, that he wanted yeah. to give him a chance to work closely with his lawyers. Yeah, yeah, whatever. One last hurrah, yeah. Trudeau. All right. Thanks, Jay. Very quick one question this week. This one is a quick follow-up to our discussion of Li-Fi. Bob, you missed it. You missed the Li-Fi discussion last I week. Haven't, yeah, but I haven't missed the controversy. Yeah, so uh, here this question This question comes from Galen R-E-B-B-E. Reeb, Rebbe? Never know how to pronounce that. And Galen writes, On podcast number 433, you referenced Li-Fi and stated that line of sight was necessary. On podcast, the science show, full program dated 10-18-2013, Mr. Haas explained why line of sight was not necessary. I assume that you, in your usual fashion, researched Li-Fi. Could you please send me links to sources that would refute Mr. Haas as to line of sight? We keep getting emails. In fact, just 10 minutes ago, I got another email from another listener uh-huh. challenging us on the line of sight claim. So uh, I did as much follow-up research on this specific question as much as possible. Very quickly, to, to just to recap, Li-Fi is light-based internet connection. So instead of using radio waves like Wi-Fi, you use uh, visible light spectrum waves from an LED. And the LED can has a computer chip in it that can essentially modulate the intensity millions of times a second. Produces very good throughput. My view is that this is going to be a nice adjunct to Wi-Fi. It'll be, uh, it'll have its niche. It'll be complementary. Jay, I think, was less positive about it. But one of the issues that came up, one of the real limitations of Li-Fi is that it requires line of sight between the emitter and the receiver. We made that point 
when we talked about it last week. And it definitely can't go through opaque objects. You know, it can't go through walls. So you can't have, you know, a Li-Fi uh, router downstairs and be using it, you know, getting a signal upstairs, unless, of course, you have light emitters in every room. The, the line of sight requirement, there's lots of references talking about the, the primary limitation of Li-Fi is that you need line of sight. That is sort of the standard Achilles heel of this technology. Well, what, what the emails are refer- referring to is a recent interview by Haas. You know, Haas works, uh, for Pure VLC, which is a company that makes a Li-Fi product. And they say that they claim that they have demonstrated that the uh, you can make a Li-Fi connection through reflected light. So because the, the the light can reflect off of a surface and still make a connection, you therefore do not need line of sight. I have two problems with that claim. Well, actually more than two, maybe three. But one is that this is coming from a the company that's manufacturing it. I haven't seen any independent replication of this. You know, people actually using it in a real life scenario. I couldn't find any details because, you know, one question I had was what are the parameters of this so-called reflected uh, Li-Fi signal? Couldn't find any technical details about the, the study that um, the pure VLC did. The write-ups are, are fairly superficial. They do mention that they were able to, to stream four videos using this reflected Li-Fi. However, the picture, the photograph that accompanies on the, on the, the pure VLC website that accompanies the discussion of their breakthrough experiment that shows you don't need line of sight shows this bright ass spotlight reflecting off of a very nearby white surface. It's as if they created the optimal situation to claim that that the reflected signal works in order to dismiss the line of sight requirement. I don't buy it. If that picture is what they're talking about, I don't buy it. Sure, theoretically, if you you have a bright enough, a reflective enough surface, a bright enough Li-Fi signal, you know, you you could make the connection off of a reflected light. But, you know, until we see that this works with uh, a real-life situation, I don't, it won't necessarily be practical. It may be technically true, but we have no idea if it's practical. And this picture is not reassuring. Also, I mean, the other thing is that it still doesn't go through walls. I mean, the limitation is still there. And even if, you know, with the, with the, the usual Li-Fi setups that you would have, if some signal might go around obstacles because it's reflecting off of surfaces, who knows what the, what, you know, what that's going to do to the, the quality of the signal that you're getting, the quality of the connection. And the fact that they're using this really bright signal suggests to me that it, it's not very good. So I don't think that they've eliminated the line of sight issue, even though they were able to sort of get around it here. Yeah, I agree. One thing I did learn, though, that's interesting from the interview with Haas is that uh, that I didn't know was that the Li-Fi can work even when the light intensity is so low that it to the visible eye to the naked eye it looks like it's off so the light would would would, would look like it's off wow they would still they would still would still be emitting enough light in order to to function again i don't i don't know how that affects things like throughput throughput but you know again i get the sense of a company trying to show how versatile and all the parameters of it but you know 
how that works, right? You know, that doesn't mean that these are going to actually be practical aspects of the technology as it's going to actually work in your office or home. That remains to be seen. But I do think this is an interesting technology. I do think it will play a role in the future. Just it's not going to replace Wi-Fi. All right, guys, well, let's take a quick break from our show to talk about this week's first sponsor, Hulu Plus. Quick story, guys. I got sick. I was home from work for two days, and I did a total Hulu Plus, like, blitz. I watched, like, four or five movies, a bunch of TV shows. I watched The Daily Show, and I watched The Colbert Report, which I didn't know were on there, but I was surfing around. I found them. I highly recommend them. And get sick, stay home, and watch movies. <laughs> I, could, I could top that, Jay. I was looking for some Halloween stuff to watch, and I and I found SpongeBob SquarePants. And you can watch all of these shows and more on Hulu Plus uh, by going to HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU, or go to our website, the SGU website, and you'll see a link there, and you can get your free trial of Hulu Plus for two weeks. And if you want to keep it, it's just seven ninety nine a month after that. Yeah, but what could I watch these on, guys? Available on connected TVs and Blu-ray players, gaming consoles, set-top boxes, mobile phones, and even more than that. There is a full list of the devices available at Hulu Plus. Don't don't forget to HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. Joining us now are Chris Mooney and Indre Viscontis. Chris and Indre, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. Now, Chris, you are a, an author and a journalist. You have authored four books, correct, including The Republican War on Science. Yep, that's me. And Indre, you are a neuroscientist and an opera singer. Yep, that's me. <laughs> wow. Good. I got that straight. I was making sure Chris wasn't the opera singer. Opera man. And <laughs> on Halloween, maybe. <laughs> I understand that you guys have a new science podcast that you want to talk about. Oh, yes. We have Inquiring Minds. And this is a project of the Climate Desk. And I also work there. Climate Desk is a you know consortium of outlets that cover climate change. And that includes Mother Jones, Grist, The Atlantic, Slate, The Guardian, Wired. And... uh the show is not just climate change, but every fourth or fifth show will be uh, focused on environment probably. But it, it lets us, you know, sort of really explore the space where science, politics, and society collide, including uh, but not limited to environmental science. So you're not afraid on the show to take political issues uh, head on? Oh, heck no. We <laughs> we just did the, a big, uh, pretty popular psychology of politics show with Jonathan Haidt, who basically writes about how liberals and conservatives are driven by different core emotional impulses that they're not necessarily consciously aware of. <laughs> so, yeah, we took it right on. Chris and I have different interests, and, and so we highlight those on the show. So my interests are more science-related with an emphasis on neuroscience, but also anything to do with medicine and biology. And, you know, Chris tackles more of the political and climate-based shows. Yeah, but I make you talk about them. You do, <laughs> often <Yeah>. nonsensically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have a slightly different format than we did in the past. So now Chris and I start out with a kind of 10-minute segment about news news from the headlines related to science, and then we go into a long-form interview, which is our signature style. And then we talk about guest. the interview, but not 
not that long. We try to stay succinct, but sometimes we don't always manage that. But this isn't the first podcast you two have done together. No, we used to co-host Point of Inquiry that was run by the um, Center for Inquiry. And I came on board onto that podcast uh, almost two years ago now. And I, we, I was there for about a year and a half. Um, and Chris, you were there for a couple years. Yeah, uh, three, I think. I. But you still do the interview solo, but you sort of chat with each other before and after the interview. Yeah. Yeah, we, it's it's pretty hard often to schedule guests such a way that, you know, all all three of us would be available. <laughs> so, um and also each of us has an interest in in different guests. So we 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 take the lead on a particular interview. So there will probably come a time, sorry, there will probably come a time when we both uh, actually are on especially if it's a live event where we co-interview someone, but for the most part that's not what we do. Speaking from experience, it's very difficult to group interview people. <laughs> right now, yeah. what are you talking about? <laughs> How do you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lots of experience. We call it gang interview. You guys seem <laughs> So what what kind of guests are you guys having on? Um well we just did a live taping uh at the Bay Area Science Festival with Alison Gopnik, who's a child psychology researcher. Um she talks about how babies are smarter than adults or smarter than we think at least. <laughs> um, so that was kind of fun, but we've had everyone, we started out with a couple of pioneering frontiers women. So Sylvia Earle, the oceanographer and Marsha Ivins, the former astronaut. Um, and then we had Nobel prize winner, Randy Sheckman on the week that he nice. won the Nobel wow. prize, which was kind of exciting. I was, I was interviewing him and his phone kept ringing and he kept having to pick it up and put it down. It was very kind of him to stay on the interview, but, uh, it was, it was the first time in an interview where I actually didn't mind the phone ringing. Yeah, yeah, added, right. Uh, <laughs> very very cool. excitement. Yeah. Appropriate. Yeah, and we've done a couple shows that are in my bailiwick. You know, I already told you about one which is on the psychology of politics, which I think is uh, endlessly fascinating and important. And I did a I did a science of science communication show where I actually had two researchers who were on the cutting edge of figuring out how to make people actually wake up and believe science i think was that the <laughs> you know, one using... with uh was dan kahan on that one yeah, yeah. i had i had him and i had someone who oh really i had someone who disagrees with him yeah um i had them both and honestly at the end of it i'm like i don't know yeah. who's right <laughs> that's uh that's pretty good <laughs> so how, how do you communicate science what's your philosophy what the issue there was, the debate was, it was climate, but you could see how it would apply to other issues. And in fact, we did bring up how this would apply to evolution. And uh, one researcher, Stephen Lewandowski, has experimental evidence that telling people that there's a strong scientific consensus actually works. In other words, telling people 97% of scientists believe something. Most people just don't want to be like going against 97% of scientists. But Kahan has shown that actually, if people are really ideological, then they really... They're more than happy to, or at least they will reinterpret the right. claim and say, oh, that, there's not really 97%. And so they were, they were actually then on that basis, basically debating what the approach is. And the, the opposite approach, if you don't want to just tell people about the 97%, is, is going to be framing. It's going to be figuring out what the value system of the audience is and then trying to, in, in essence, repackage to, talk about the issue in a way that doesn't promote resistance. Yeah, what I find interesting about all of that is that it comes down to ultimately to psychological manipulation. You're just trying to exploit some <laughs> mm. aspect of human psychology in order to get people to listen. There was just a study, for example, looking at physicians convincing parents to vaccinate their children. And the technique that seemed to work was when the physicians assumed 
the parents were going to vaccinate their children and just talked as if they had already decided to do so rather than saying, do you want to vaccinate ah, your children? Uh-huh. And again, it's just, okay, that, I believe it. That works because it's psychological manipulation. You're just using social pressure of one type or another to get people to go along. They must have read uh, Richard Wiseman's latest book, The As yeah. If Principle, and we're just acting on it. As if. <laughs> <laughs> But how could it be otherwise, really? I mean, yes, yes, it's true. And yes, when you tell, for instance, scientists about the wonders of framing, some of them bristle and say, aren't you talking about spinning? But in effect, how could you not be, if you're persuading someone, how could you not be in some way um, appealing to their psychology? Yeah. I mean, you know, I guess you could just completely clinically lay out information and not even have it in an order, right? I mean, to try to not manipulate, but I, the effect would just be that no one would be interested. It's just a tool yeah. of effective communication. I mean, that's all it is. Yeah, but not only are they not interested, it just flat out doesn't work. I mean, physicians have been doing this for for decades now, you know, tr and this is like pub the public service announcement. This is your brain on drugs, right? This is let's give people information and they'll make rational decisions and shock, you know, that doesn't work. You have to you have to psychologically manipulate people into making rational decisions. But then, yeah, as as, as Chris's point goes to show with that interview, the problem becomes, you know, how? what does the yeah. science? Yeah, what does the science tell us about how to actually go about that? Because it does seem like every week there's a new study coming out that conflicts with the previous one. Well, this is yeah, this is fast moving, and also this is a science that is in home. You know, it's not exactly physics, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's but it's both of those things, uh, and so it turns out that there's not a best way. Plus, it varies with the audience, mm -hmm. so you have to also study the audience, and you will have different uh, best techniques depending on the audience. So, this is this is a, it, it's still a, an art in many ways. Yeah. yeah. That, so, I mean, you know, nobody right. can explain scientifically why, well, actually, maybe a little bit, but nobody can explain scientifically why Neil Tyson is so good at um, what he does, except that he's just incredibly electric, which is a probably partly a personality thing. But, you know, like, the, there's something to the art of communication um, that I think will always be there, too. There's more than one way to skin a cat often, too. You mentioned Neil deGrasse Tyson and his, you know, approach. But at the same time, you know, Carl Sagan, who I wouldn't call an electrifying presenter by any stretch, he still had a mannerism all himself that really kind of drew you into every word he was saying. And he captivated people in a much different way. And then you have Stephen Hawking, who does, you know, who speaks through a machine and is extremely charismatic because yeah. he's so intelligent. And what he says is so fascinating, you know. It is amazing that his personality can come through there. And there, it, it, to me, it, it, it shows that there's something more than body language and all that like there is something to be said about the way people put words together you know what words do they line up and and uh like how does that feel you know you can get a feel of something but from reading a book and there isn't any body language with that you know so chris obviously you know we agree with the basic notion that you want to make science communication entertaining at least we aspire to that but where do you draw the line like for example as reading your article on mother jones why most of what you've heard about cancer is wrong, which is a provocative headline. That's uh, the article's fine, but I mean that's the kind of headline that I would scoff at as like sensationalizing or hyping. So, you know what I'm saying? So, what do you feel about that? Well, I don't know. Let me actually. I'm sorry to answer a question with a question, but you said the article was fine. So, I most people reacting to that one uh, on Twitter and elsewhere, and that article really got around they actually were surprised 
to read what was in the article. Well, you know, I, mean, I wasn't surprised by any of the facts in the yeah. article because I knew them yeah. already because I'm a physician. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. you know, they serve, you know, they're presented in a way, you know, they're, you're taking some basic fact of science and trying to present it in a way that makes it sound really exciting. Although, you know, some of them are things like, you know, eating fruits and vegetables are actually not going to protect you from cancer. That one's interesting because it's a very common misconception. But the facts just don't bear it out. That's the kind of thing we would talk about on the show. Another one, hey, dinosaurs got cancer. It's like, okay, that's all right. That's, I'm not sure why that's especially interesting. Of course they got cancer. Every, everyone, you know, every animal gets cancer. I don't think most people know that though, but sharks okay. don't. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I actually, I, I think, I think there are people who out there who believe that sharks don't get cancer, oh. which, which is not true. In fact, they do. Um, and they, and there's also people out there who think that cancer is something that is a product of the industrialized world. So why would dinosaurs who are living in, you know, the natural idyllic Eden, uh, that we've destroyed with industry get cancer? So that was, that was the impetus behind that, the, that particular fact. That was my interview and I, and I, and I wrote a lot of it along with Chris. And so, and, and, you know, we both of us have different styles in terms of writing. And I, I came around to this notion that, you know, you really want to dry, dry, sorry, bring people in, um, and then tell them the facts as they are. So, you know, we didn't, as you, as you hopefully noticed, (laughs) we didn't say anything incorrect. We fact checked very carefully. We didn't, we didn't sensationalize within the article, but we still need to grab people's attention. I mean, there's so much media out there. People have so little time to spend reading stuff. So, you know, if a headline can grab your attention, then we can fill your brain with knowledge. I think we've done our job. Yeah, we actually do. We, we, the, um, the podcasts run as articles, as you've seen, and the articles are, usually pretty long and um they actually they are you know this is a journalistic enterprise so they're they're fact checked etc so i mean we're we're pretty careful yeah and there was you know there was one that we left out which was really about how people have this notion that if you smoke a pack a day for 50 years you're going to get lung cancer but in fact the numbers don't bear that out i mean yes you're way more likely to get lung cancer than if you didn't smoke a pack a day for 50 years but your likelihood is still on the order of say one in eight or you know 13 percent depending on you know how long you've smoked and whether you've quit etc etc so the vast majority of people aren't aren't going to die from lung cancer, even if they've smoked a pack a day. We decided not to include that ultimately in the article because we felt that there was a lot of, there would be a lot of confusion that people would say, oh, are they trying to say that smoking doesn't cause cancer? Um, but, you know, that, that was one of the, the choices that we had to make. But at the same time, I, I still feel that getting people to understand these kinds of misconceptions about cancer is actually really important. Yeah, but you raise a very important issue, something that we've talked about amongst ourselves and on the show, and that is when you're confronting misconceptions or myths, you can very easily inadvertently promote them. Uh, or, you know, no matter how you try to clarify something, there's always a deeper level on which somebody could misunderstand or misinterpret what you said. You're right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's yeah. how memory works, right? In the end, you you bring your cognitive biases to the way that you uh, read something. And even if you change your mind in the moment, the when you remember it, mm-hmm. three, four, five days later, you know, you, you misremember it as a fact as opposed to a myth. That's that's one of the reasons we didn't include the lung cancer um, point, which I, I was I was sad to we see. We didn't want, yeah, we didn't want, I mean, smoking can also get you in a lot of ways other than lung cancer. Sure, it's still bad yeah. for you. And we don't yeah. want, you know... <laughs> But that, that's something else that we confront all the time and is, um, like you're talking about, if you, if you were going to talk about the not everybody who smokes gets lung cancer, 
you have to then also include all the caveats, all the way, possible ways in which people will mis misinterpret or misunderstand that point, and then it just gets endless. So, so we encounter that every week where we know, you know, there's only so many side issues and, and caveats that we can explore, and we just just wait for the emails to come rolling in to, you know, to explain to us all the things we didn't cover, and that's just the background noise of doing the podcast. I mean, do you guys find that too? Yeah, I mean, that was why we cut out the lung cancer thing, because we started adding, okay, but it's got stroke and hypertension and all these other issues, and plus all the other cancers that are involved, and it just, the article just got too long, and so, you know, we had to, we had to make it's that too decision. too bad, because it is I a really interesting fact, which I did not know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. You know, when you see that happening, I think that this is, this is why one of the things that we cover, will cover, will continue to cover is, the, you know, the psychology of how people interact with science. When you see that happening, I mean, you know what's happening, Steve, because of a motivation, right? And you know that there's, you know, you've hit somebody in a particular place, uh, emotionally by some stance that you've taken, and then they proceed to argue, right? This is how it works. And then when they proceed to argue, they proceed to seize upon whatever is good for arguing. And so it might be you left this out, you know, it's, and this is, this is, it, interestingly, this is why often when you get, as a journalist, someone says, you know, this was incorrect, you need to run a correction. And usually it's actually, you look at the claim, and it's like, actually, no, that's an opinion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but they think it's they think you're wrong but actually no they didn't even they didn't even assert that you were wrong they actually just sort of said i disagree but it was so emotional that they had to say you're wrong but look it's great that these things are complicated right because that means there's going to be work for us for decades yet <laughs> you know things aren't going to get solved oh tomorrow. it's endless yeah absolutely um yeah i also think that's why you know part of the reason why we explore these issues in the context of Skepticism, which is sort of the meta knowledge about thinking and information and, and knowledge and science. We trying to get people to think about their, their motivations, their logic, the way they're framing their discussion, what's an opinion versus a fact. And then we can appeal to them on that level when they do things like raise their opinion as if it is a fact or like we just got an email from somebody who is saying that the 97% of scientists who think that global warming is real, they're the ones who are biased because they they need to keep their funding rolling in, you know. And the 3% who disagree with them, those are the people who are unbiased. That, that was how he dealt with the, the 97% issue. Yeah, we, we've heard that a lot. And in fact, a lot of people have questioned that particular number, even to me, you know, on, on, on Facebook and elsewhere. It's, it's interesting how people have a real issue with that particular number. Oh, yeah. It threatens, well, th that, that one threatens a belief system. I mean, <laughs> it goes straight out of belief. Then this is why, I mean, I, I don't mean to circle back too much, but that's why it's so, it's a debate whether that's a good communication tactic. <laughs> right. <laughs> is it goes straight at the heart, um, of what, some people think uh, is true and it should be confrontational and the question is does confrontational work and it was amazing as research suggesting it just might um, because a lot of people are overwhelmed by the fact that there's such agreement that they don't necessarily feel that they I guess they don't feel they can counter it yeah yeah it's it's funny sometimes you know there are those times when people just knuckle under the evidence and I'm almost surprised when it happens but it does happen you know regularly People just, or they're not aware. Well, they're not aware of all the misinformation and the fact that their head is filled with things that are just simply not true. When you overwhelm them with actual facts, 
they they go, oh, wow, well, there must be something there. Of course, this somebody could overwhelm them with misinformation and the same thing happens. I mean, I, I think that's one of the big uh, reasons why the 9-11 conspiracy theories of, you know, especially Building 7 have continued to proliferate. There are these, you know, manifestos of, of quote unquote evidence suggesting that the, that the Building 7 was deliberately taken down by the government. Um, and, and that to me is fascinating that, that people find that so compelling. Yeah, we were actually just talking about that um, a couple of shows ago because it was still coming up. We were still getting emails about it from people who found it, you know, completely convincing. They had seen some loose change type video online and just mm -hmm. bought into it entirely. It's special because it's one of the few well-documented, um, completely left-wing falsehoods where you can actually show that it's, it is predominantly left-wing. Uh, there's a couple of other ones, but I mean, you know, a lot of them are falling on the right. That's one that is clear, clearly not, that does correlate with ideology. It does swing left. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Do you think that if a uh, Democrat had been in office that on 9-11, do you think that today 9-11 truthers would be predominantly Republican? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, or, or it would be something else, right? I yeah. Because you can't, you can't tell what people are going to actually get fixated on. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that there's a much stronger, I think there's a study on this. I'd have to go dig it up. It's much stronger inclination to believe conspiracy theories about the president you hate, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, then that's, that's actually, that's actually, you know, pretty bipartisan. You know, but I, but I think that the nine eleven truther is one of the one of the left wing irrationalities that is the most stark. Yeah, I, I would have previously said that GMO and Monsanto is another one, but that the data doesn't necessarily bear that out. Yeah, it's more it's more complicated because I think it, the yeah. the uh, the libertarian or the the anti government right may also be buying into that as well. Hmm. And nuclear is one. Yeah, I was wondering to, how, to what extent are the truthers libertarian versus yeah. liberal? I don't think they are. I'd I'd have to go look, but yeah. I I I'm pretty sure that it was an you know anti-Bush um, liberal kind yeah. of thing, and still yeah. is insofar as. But but there definitely is also a subculture of conspiracy theorists that are sort of equal opportunity conspiracy theorists, right? They don't swing right or left. They just believe in any conspiracy. Right. That's that's Lee Wendowski who was on the show with Kahan who, who who's done the who's done research on that and the consensus message. He and others have shown that conspiracy beliefs correlate. So there's this, you know, independent factor as he calls it, that's the conspiratorial belief that's separate from the ideology. Yeah, just like religiosity is is to some extent genetic, right? In the sense that it doesn't matter what you believe, but it matters how fervently you believe. It's coded in your genes. To you know, they they look at these twin studies that show twins separated, you know, for their lifetime, and if they're if they're super religious, they might have might believe in different religions, but they are equally fervent. Um, so maybe this this conspiracy factor is somewhat. We're so doing a show on this, by idea. the way. I'm just. I, I I don't know who the guest is, but I don't think it even matters ultimately. You know, the genetics of religion. I think it's just it has to be done. The God gene, right? <laughs> we gotta find the God gene. <laughs> yeah, but it's not one. It's yeah, not one course, gene, though. Yeah. It's 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 um it's yeah. the identical twins research that just keeps showing again and again. Well, Chris and Indri, I'm already enjoying your new show. Good luck with everything. Thank you so much for having Thanks us. Thanks so much. Yep, a lot of fun having you guys on. All right, guys, let's get to our next ad for this week. We are going to talk again about Squarespace.com, which is an all-in-one platform 
for hosting and creating your own website. Yeah, Squarespace makes it really easy to start a website for your business, your blog, whatever it is you want. They have over 20 customizable templates. They're all awesome. The software is really easy to use. And it walks you through the process of developing your own customized website. And if you need any help, Squarespace has an amazing support team. They work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all the time. And it starts at just $8 a month. It includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Oh, Ev, did you know that you could easily import your existing content from your existing host or existing website into the Squarespace platform? Yes, absolutely. Guys, you could also set up your business in minutes. It's completely secure. It takes only about 30 seconds to sign in uh, with Stripe. And you can also sell anything with Squarespace, from digital and physical goods to services and donations. Squarespace also takes care of your tax and shipping options by region. Yeah, it's very, very easy to use. So get your free trial of Squarespace. You don't need a credit card, and you can start building your own website. If you use Squarespace, then make sure you use the offer code SGU11, and you will get 10% off and also show your support for the Skeptic's Guide. And, of course, we always appreciate that Squarespace is a sponsor of the SGU. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. But this week we have a special guest who's going to play science or fiction along with us, Gary Kazeel. Gary, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Hey, guys. Hey, hey what's up? Hey, it's Gary. Gary. For, for those of you who uh, don't know who Gary is, Gary is uh, the guy. He's the person who made those really cool zombie cards of us last year. Gary does a lot of professional uh, baseball card-sized illustrations and drawings and, uh, you know, Gary, give us a quick rundown of some of the projects that you do. Uh, well, it, it sort of ranges uh, from Star Wars, or, or Star Wars is a big one, a lot of TV properties, uh, Walking Dead, obviously, comic book like Marvel DC type stuff, uh, baseball, football, pretty much anything that has a trading card set associated with it. A pretty popular chase item to put in packs is uh, what's called a sketch card, and it's basically just original artwork on the front of a card that is limited to one of one, and, and uh, they're really big in, in collector circles. So, Gary, tell us about the special deal we have for our listeners. Well, we kind of set up a little incentive to join at the, the higher levels of membership, and what that is is uh, for the highest four levels, I'm able to... What we did was we came up with some really nicely printed... Uh, cards that have blank fronts and, and on the back it has, uh, the skeptic's guide to the universe and it has a, a little area for us to sign it and everything like that. And it's numbered one of one. And, and uh, on the front, that's where the artwork will go. And it, and it basically works like if you join at the $50 level, I will do, uh, black and white artwork, uh, full detail, just no color. The $75 level is sort of like, uh, it's it's almost it's almost like a between point of color and full color and black and white where it's sort of just a limited palette and and at the hundred dollar level that's where it will be a, like a fully rem rendered 
full color palette type of art. And then we added another level that's even higher than that, the, the Jedi Sith level. And, uh, at, at that level, I, I would incorporate you into the artwork somehow, uh, draw you as a zombie as I did like all of, all of the, all of you guys. And I did George too, um, George Rab and uh, a, a ton of other people uh, in the in the past couple of years. So that would be an option or any anything like super custom like that. That would be the perk on the, the This would make a great present too. So we were going to let you guys know that if you know you have a birthday or you want to give someone a holiday present coming up that this membership along with giving someone the SGU membership and help support the SGU that you could incorporate this card into the present. Yeah, and speaking of which, we are updating the membership page to offer annual recurring memberships uh, in addition to the monthly recurring. So if you sign up for an, uh, a membership at the annual level, then you could get your card right away rather than having to wait for being a year, being a member for one year. And gift memberships, you can you can sign up for an SGU membership and give it as a gift to someone. They will get an email from us. Uh, they will be able to then enter, you know, their own username and password. And if you do it at one of the card levels, uh, the Guild Navigator, Time Lord, Starship Science Officer, or Jedi Dark Lord level, they will get one of Gary Kazeel's cards as well. Um, so it's a great time to, to give a gift membership for the SGU. The cards will go to existing members at these levels. Essentially, if you sign up as a member at one of these levels prior to January 1st, 2014, you will be eligible for the card. All right, so Gary, while we got you here, you're going to sit in with us for science or fiction. Yeah, I'm going with Bob. So, I'm going with Bob already. Oh, come on. Smart come on. guy, smart so, no, guy. Sorry, sorry, Bob's sorry, been at, you're going yes, first, Gary. Yeah, yeah, we'll see about that. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Well, that's okay. Everyone can go with me then. All right, here we go. Uh, Three regular news items this week. Item number one, a new long-term study of astronauts finds that prolonged exposure to microgravity may reverse atherosclerotic changes in blood vessels. Item number two, researchers have found that playing rock or pop music increases the efficiency of one type of solar cell by 40%. And item number three, orthopedic surgeons have identified a previously unknown ligament in the human knee. Gary, as our guest, you get the distinct privilege and honor of going first. Okay. Uh, let's see. Number one, a new long-term study of astronauts finds that prolonged exposure to microgravity may reverse the arthrosclerotic changes in blood vessels. Uh, sure. Prolonged exposure to microgravity does all sorts of things. I don't, uh, I don't know a whole lot about it, but I'll buy it. Um, number two, researchers have found playing rock or pop music increases the efficiency of one type of solar cell. By f I don't see how that would be true. I don't know how sound would affect the, the cell. Uh, uh, I'll skip over to number three. Orthopedic surgeons have identified a previously unknown ligament in the human knee. I think that one is true. So I'm going to go with number two is the fiction. The uh, solar cell. The solar cell. Is the fiction. Okay, Evan? So a long-term study of astronauts, prolonged exposure to microgravity, it might reverse these changes in the blood vessels. So, okay, it's, I suppose that's possible. There's nothing immediately jumping off the page at me uh, that says uh, false in some way. The next one, uh, 
Playing rock or pop music increases the efficiency of one type of solar cell by 40%. How the heck does that happen? If Well, okay, so efficiency has to do with the surface area of these solar cells, I imagine. Could it be creating these, like, little micro folds or something along the, uh, the solar cell? I'm thinking that that one's going to turn out to be true. The last one, uh, a previously unknown ligament in the human knee. I don't see why this couldn't be true also. Uh, you would think that we would have all the ligaments in the body pretty well scoped out by now. <laughs> but uh, who knows? Um, that's leading me back to the microgravity one. So I'm going to say that this prolonged exposure to microgravity and the blood vessels is going to be the fiction. Alrighty, Rebecca? The playing rock or pop music for a solo show, that is so ridiculous. Like, I can believe that vibrations could change something, yes. But why rock or pop music? I can only assume that if this one is true, it was in order to sell this article. Like, to get it out there, some PR move. Because, like, it doesn't matter. Just just make vibrating noises. It doesn't need to be music. But it's so ridiculous that there's no way you made that up, Steve. Uh, this is beyond the ability of Steve to make up. Uh, <laughs> you're not capable, Steve. She called you. You're out. not capable. I'm calling you out. Meta. You're not. I'm good at the psych- psychological game sometimes. You are. <laughs> so, and uh, identifying a previously unknown ligament in the human knee. Yeah. Have you seen the inside of your body? It's disgusting in there. <laughs> How do you find anything? If I lost a pen in my own intestines, I would never be able to find it. So, yeah, I can believe that one too. So, merely by process of elimination, I am going to also say that the astronaut one is the fake. Okay, Bob? Yeah, the ligament. So, that's what? The ligament's bone to bone, tendons, uh, muscle to bone. Yeah, I guess I can kind of see that. I hear about that all the time. And also, I know there's uh, this, uh, this tremendous variation from human to human. Sometimes, I think my my ex-father-in-law, they found they found some tendon in his eye that, like, nobody has. Uh, what? But, but I, I, yeah, it was really they, – they actually wrote it had up. Had he been in, working in a out a lot? <laughs> um, but th- I know this is different, Steve. This is more of a, of a common thing you're talking about. But I could see it, a tiny ligament that somehow they'd missed. Yeah, still it's kind of weird after all this time. How the hell do you miss it? But – I can kind of buy that one uh, more than the other ones. Uh, the the efficiency of the solar cell. The key there is one type. You know, there's lots of different types of solar cells, and maybe it's it's some weird, obscure type of solar cell, and it's not very efficient at all. And for some reason, these uh, specific beats of the of sound waves somehow can increase this meager efficiency uh, by forty percent, which still doesn't you know add up to much anyway. Maybe the other one. Um, uh, number one, the astronauts and the exposure to microgravity. Yeah, that one. I just when, when you get down to that scale of you know these tiny plaques on your in your blood vessels, gra- I don't think gravity really doesn't have much of an impact at that scale. Sure, gravity has an impact on how your heart works and things like that, but um, I'm just that one's just rubbing me the wrong way. And yeah, there are, Gary, there are lots of different things that happen to the body in microgravity, but I I just don't think this is one of them. So I'm gonna say that one's fiction. And Jay. And I think I'm going to go with the crowd here and say that the first one about the microgravity is a fake. Okay. So let's see. The one that you all agree on is the orthopedic surgeons have identified a previously unknown ligament in the human knee. 
You all like that one as science, and that one is science. I know that one person in the study didn't have it. That's one person did not have it. That's correct. So this was a study looking at 41 cadaveric knees, and all but one had this new ligament called the anterolateral ligament of the knee. When you say new ligament, you mean newly discovered. Newly discovered, a previously unknown ligament, although the presence of this ligament was suspected because it serves a specific function. Um, Often when people have an anterior cruciate ligament tear, even after it's repaired, sometimes the knees uh, will still buckle. They still will give way because of so-called pivot shift. They can still move around. And so for that reason, it was suspected, well, maybe there's another another ligament in there that we don't know about. 1879, French surgeon postulated the existence of an additional ligament. Uh, and orthopedic surgeons finally, with this cadaveric study, they finally demonstrated the presence of this ligament in 40 out of 41 subjects. And what this does is it this ligament stabilizes the knee and prevents pivot shift. So this may result in improvements in surgical techniques, which would re- eliminate or reduce this complication of anterior cruciate ligament injuries. How long could you suspect something like that? I mean, if you suspect it, cut somebody up and look for it. I mean, how long does it take? Yeah, you know, uh, Rebecca's correct. Anatomy is messy, and it's hard to you know, trace all the anatomical structures. So you, you had you had to go looking for it. What about our, all our imaging technology? Just put the damn thing in a scanner and pull out your tricord or something. Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing that would be very hard to see with an MRI or a CAT scan. Must be. So, yeah, I mean, the MRIs are not really good at identifying long, stringy, stringy anatomical structures. All right, let's go back to number one. A new long-term study of astronauts finds that prolonged exposure to microgravity may reverse atherosclerotic changes in blood vessels. Gary, you think this one is science. All the rogues think this one is the fiction. And this one is the fiction. Yay. Ah. Sorry, Gary. I'm like, I got a 0%. I got a zero batting average now. Zero. Yeah. You suck. I'm out of plate appearances. Whatever. I win 100% of the time when I'm not on the show. See that? Yes, you do. Yeah. So what is true is that a new study shows that microgravity, prolonged exposure to microgravity, accelerates atherosclerotic changes and biological aging. Asteroids are getting older quicker. Yeah. Microgravity is just bad for you. It's nasty. There's just no way that we're going to, I think, colonize space without some kind of artificial gravity. You know, just rotational, just spinning around to... Gravity plates. So, yeah, just just long periods of microgravity just totally wreaks havoc on the body. This means that researchers have found that playing rock or pop music increases the efficiency of one type of solar cell by 40% is science. Dumb. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Well, they took these uh, solar cells, you see, see. and <laughs> they played rock or pop music. So these are solar cells containing clusters of nano rods. Uh-huh. And Nano. when you play sounds that vibrate these rods, mm-hmm. the the vibrations actually generate extra energy through the piezoelectric effect. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. However, the researchers found 
that the solar cells produce more extra energy than can be explained by the energy from the sound waves. It's more than the energy contained in the sound. So it's free energy. It's free so energy. It increasing the efficiency. So it's incre- increasing the efficiency of the solar cells themselves in some way that they, I think they still have yet to uh, identify. And why is it important that Miley Cyrus be the one making the sounds in question? She's a wrecking ball. <laughs> you know, who knows? Maybe this will, will come up with some way of increasing the efficiency of solar cells. Um, or they said that, you know, photovoltaics on like machinery that's producing a sound waves anyway, like a constant noise, we could harvest some of the energy from that noise through the photovoltaic. You didn't answer my question. Maybe they only tried rock or pop music. Maybe they didn't try uh, classical. Your question is why rock or pop? Because those (laughs) have music at all. Those have the correct. Those frequencies work the best. Yeah, but those frequencies can be easily produced without it being a song. That's correct. It's just that the 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 rock music contained the the (laughs) frequencies that worked the best. It worked better than classical music, apparently. Classical music did not work as well. But you're right. They could have just produced monotonous tones of the right frequency. Which also means, Steve, that they could probably fine-tune a specific sound wave that that makes it, you know, 50% or 55 or... All right, so good work, everyone. Gary, not bad try. Your first time out of the gate, you know, it's It tough. was a bad try, though, because he got it wrong. No, so. no, but his thought no, but process got, was perfectly fine. It was actually right. the quintessential bad try. Yeah. Nah, Just I cut the guy some slack. Disagree. It's okay. If I don't hear this now, I'll never learn. It's yeah. Right. yeah, this is this How is will he corrective. ever learn? I'll just go back to getting them all right when I'm when I'm listening instead of... Jay, do you have a quote for us? I have a quote sent in uh, by a listener named Bill... Cosman and Bill lives in Alberta, Canada. It's a really, really cool quote. Uh, the quote is, if we go back to the beginnings of things, we shall always find that ignorance and fear created the gods, that imagination, rapture, and deception embellish them, that weakness worships them, that custom spares them, and that tyranny favors them in order to profit from the blindness of men. Baron the Holbach! <laughs> Not bad. Good job. Not bad, Gary. <laughs> Yeah. I have one announcement this week. Friday, November 22nd, just coming up, uh, I will be in Arizona, and I will be making a guest appearance for the Phoenix Area Skeptic Society. They're putting together a Hollywood Squares game, and I'm going to be one of the squares. Wow. Gonna have a, take the middle. Take the middle. I, yeah, I guess, Paul I, You'll guess be I'll Paul take Lind. whatever they're going to give me. I think that's Bruce Valanche now. There'll be a quiz show. I'll be this, there'll be three celebrity skeptics in the squares, and then the uh, the um, attendees will be playing, and then we'll just have a typical meet and greet after the after the show is over. But it should be fun. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So if you're in the Scottsdale, Arizona area on November twenty second, two thousand thirteen, then uh, come to the event. It should be a lot of fun. I'll have the link for the details on the show notes. Go to the Phoenix Area Skeptic Society Facebook page. Also, you'll see all of the details. All right. Well, Gary, thanks for uh, coming on the show. Thanks for agreeing to do the cards for us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. Any doctor. Thank you, the doctor. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org. 
where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. And don't forget that this episode was brought to you by Hulu Plus. To sign up for your free trial of Hulu Plus and start watching your favorite shows right now, and for an extended free trial, go to huluplus.com forward slash SGU. Or just go to our homepage, and there will be a link right there for you.